I don't know that I could add much to what we just sung about the glory of God and all his saints must praise him. How can we not? We're going to be in Genesis 41 verses 37 through 57 this morning. Recall how we've been told previously in this story that's unfolding before us. Joseph had been sold to Potiphar, and it was said that the the Lord was with Joseph and caused all that he did to prosper. When Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him and gave him understanding of the dreams of the chief butler and the chief baker. Two years later, the Lord is with Joseph as he interprets Pharaoh's dream and gives him counsel. And in our passage today, we see that the Lord was with Joseph and caused him to prosper in wisdom. Maybe second to Solomon in the wisdom that God gave this man. So... Genesis 41, we'll read first verses 37 to 45. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, There is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, And he clothed them in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot of which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh gave Joseph's name zaphnath Paniah, and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharoth, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. The text starts off by saying the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of all of his servants. Do you recall what advice this was? Last week when David was teaching out of this chapter, we learned in chapter 41, verses 33 through 36, where it reads, Now therefore, let Joseph is talking to Pharaoh. Let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years 
And let them gather all the food of those years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. This is pretty good counsel. Pharaoh recognizes it as wise and he asks his men, his counselors, can we find anybody like this? Now, I don't think Pharaoh expected his folks to give him an answer because he's king and he tells people what to do. He doesn't really get counsel from many people. That's how kings used to be when they were autocrats. It's interesting that Pharaoh specifies the man should have the spirit of God in him. This is interesting. A pagan king knows something about the God of Joseph. He had been told back in verse 12 that Joseph was a Hebrew. He had no doubt heard about how Potiphar had prospered under Joseph's care. He had to have known that. Potiphar was a high-ranking guy in his kingdom. And he prospered immensely. Because of Joseph. God was with Joseph. He might have heard stories about old man Abraham, who was a Hebrew, whom the Lord prospered, giving him victory over five kings in the valley of Sodom. Pretty impressive victory. Had to have been talked about amongst those Amalekites and all the other ites that were out there. And all throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, we read about people who heard about the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, the God who flattened Jericho, reduced Sodom to ash. These stories were known. Some, like Simon Magnus, thought they could buy the power of God. He's currency to be handled. Others, like Rahab, recognized that Yahweh was too great for any to stand against. You got these two reactions when people come into true knowledge of God. I want to be like him, or nobody can stand before him because he is too great. Whether Pharaoh was in awe of Yahweh, or whether he was merely motivated by self glory, or even the good of his people, we don't know. We do know that he recognized that Joseph had wisdom beyond mortal man and he elevated him to be in his kingdom to a similar position that he was in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's house is important. Pharaoh's kingdom is much more important. Second in command at a much higher station in life. Responsible for everything other than the throne. He can't issue edicts as king because he's not king. John Gill said, Joseph was not merely as the corn master general to take care of provision for corn in time of plenty against time of scarcity, but as a viceroy or deputy governor over the whole land. He says, because all these honors and insignias, the ring and the robes that were given to him, ride in the chariot, 
The guards that attended him when he rode it out in chariot, they called the people telling them to bow down before him. We heard that in our text. And Gill says that this is a token of veneration and respect. You hear those terms back in the Roman religion, veneration and so forth. It's how people give honor to deity. They proclaimed they, they proclaimed abrek, a phrase, a word which some old commentator said refers to, describes a person who is father to the king. They ascribed to Joseph the status. He was the father to the king, not in the flesh, but he was a man who provided protection to Pharaoh's kingdom. And you see in chapter 45, verse 8, Joseph describes himself as a father to Pharaoh after he's revealing himself to his brothers and sisters. All of this has been set up by God for a man upon whom he had set his favor. We find out later what all of this culminates in. This progressive revelation that shows the handiwork of God in time coming to this point and that point, which all points to the fullness of time. Joseph's treatment is similar to how Mordecai was honored about a thousand years later. Remember in Esther 6, Hamar is trying to get Mordecai killed, trying to kill all the Jews. And the king says, what should we do for a man? He's found out what Mordecai's done. He says, what should we do for such a man who's done such an honor for the king? And Hamar thinks he's talking about him. And he says, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest on its head. Let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and declare before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now we know that Haman didn't get this honor, but Mordecai did. Mordecai was the one that the king favored because he had served honorably without seeking to promote himself. This is something that was mentioned yesterday morning when some of us were talking. Self-promotion is not a key attribute of the Christian faith. It's not a key attribute of a humble servant of God. But when a king honors you, it's a big deal in the world. It was a big deal to Mordecai. It was a big deal to all the Hebrews that, might have, that would have otherwise been killed. It was a big deal to Joseph. Big deal to Joseph. In our day, kings are quite domesticated. And they're not feared. But you go back 600 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years. Kings were the voice of God to the people. Caesar is Lord. That was not simply a phrase. The man Caesar thought that he was God, or at least a God. The king of England, when he rebelled against the Roman Catholics, 
part of his rationale for doing so is he's the king of England and nobody's above me. You don't talk back to the king. It's not that way anymore. We have a hard time really comprehending how fearful and autocratic ancient kings were. Pharaoh puts emphasis on Joseph's authority. He wants people to understand this. He says, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all of Egypt. That's not simply, as Gil said, it's not simply giving Joseph management over the corn supply. That's talking about all the daily minutia that goes on throughout all the land in everybody's life. You don't raise a hand or foot unless Joseph says. I would not want that kind of responsibility. In the army, you know, if you're a platoon leader or company commander, first sergeant, you got some authority and responsibility over people. And it can sometimes get to the raise a hand, raise a foot type of level. But you want people that are thinking and can do what's right without micromanaging them. But at any rate, we don't know how that worked out, but we know Joseph had that authority. And he gave Joseph a name which conveyed the idea that he was a man who revealed secrets. This name that he gave him that I'm not going to try to pronounce again conveys the idea he reveals secrets. He gave him a daughter of a priest of his own religion from the city of the sun. That's, that's what this on city is referred to as the city of the sun. That denotes the main deity that they worshiped there. They were sun worshipers. You might recall that it's said of Abraham before he came to faith in God that he was a part of a clan of moon worshipers. People tend to be attracted to the celestial bodies that they can see and assign deity to them. Now, the uh, Nebuchadnezzar gives Daniel a Babylonian name. So Pharaoh gave Joseph an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife as means to attach him to the Egyptian culture and people. See, when, when, the, when the Hebrew boys were captured to Babylon, they gave them Babylonian names and instructed them in Babylonian culture and everything because they wanted to Babylonianize them. Right? Pharaoh doesn't want Joseph to go away. So he's trying to get him sucked in and attached Attached to the Egyptian culture. Give him a wife. The, the priesthood was second in command of the Pharaoh. They were his chief counselors. Because, you know, if you got this idea that you're a god, then you need a religious guy to, you know, make sure that things go well for you. So all of this was, in one sense, a great honor for Joseph. But it was also very wise of the Pharaoh to keep this guy within my reach, serving me, making me prosper like he did Potiphar. See, the same idea is at work in the world today. The system of the world wants to drag us aside and make us feel at home in the world and conform us to the patterns of the culture of the world. You can't have your stick-in-the-mud religion and live in the world. You're supposed to conform to what we say is true. I saw in the news yesterday, or two days ago, rather, 
the governor of Kentucky. He recently spoke against advertising. There's some people in his state that are advertising a bill that they want to pass that would oppose transsexual, the, the agenda of all that mess. The Kentucky governor described this advertising as angry, nasty, scapegoating, hate-based. And he summed up the reason for his position being in favor of emotionally and surgically mutilating young children. That's what he's in favor of. And he says, quote, I think that's a threat, this, this agenda against this. I think that's a threat to who we are and certainly violates that golden rule that we love our neighbor as ourselves and that parable of the Good Samaritan that said, everyone is our neighbor, end quote. You can't love your neighbor unless you go along with them and say that a four-year-old or a 12-year-old can be sexually mutilated because they... Joan was a tomboy growing up. I thank God that she grew up when she did and not face the the onslaught of the Babylonians and the Egyptians that are driving our cultures this day. That's what the world is doing to us brothers and sisters, trying to pull us away. In all the years that Joseph spent in Pharaoh's court, he never lost sight of Yahweh. The Lord was with Joseph and he does not let go of his own. Just as he was with Daniel, as long as Daniel lived a long life in Babylon, never Forgot God. Was never forgotten by God. If you are favored by the King of Kings, He will keep you. If you are favored by the King of Kings, you will resist the call of the world and remain at rest in His care. And while being honored by an earthly king is a relatively high honor, being honored by the King of Kings is beyond measure the greatest honor. Joseph had the favor of the King of Egypt because he had been and was favored by the King of all. And as redemptive history unfolds for us, we know that the one who is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, he is the King whose favor we must have or else we will not survive this world, or the next. Let's look at the next part of our Scripture, verses 46 to 52. Verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly so he gathered up all of the food of the seven, seven years which were in the land of Egypt and he laid up the food in the cities and he laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sands of the sea until he stopped counting for it was unmeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharoth, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. 
For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the, the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, you note the activity of Joseph, a young man by our standards, only 30 years old, doing as he had counseled Pharaoh. Gave Pharaoh wise counsel. Pharaoh says, you're the wise man. Do this. Joseph is carrying out the counsel he'd given Pharaoh. Apparently, nobody else in the whole world of that of that time had any idea that this famine was coming because there's nothing in the Bible and nothing that I know of in extra biblical history that said other nations made preparation. Even the Egyptians who were told the seven years of famine are coming after the seven years of plenty. The people that Joseph went around collecting grain from there was grain left over, and we'll see, they didn't even pick it up and store it. They were just sitting back and letting Joseph do what he had been told to do. Pharaoh's chief executive had been traveling the land. Joseph was telling people what was coming and ordering food to be stored up in every city. And it's produce of the field, so it's likely grain, because that doesn't rot very quickly. Wouldn't be perishable stuff. We're talking about you're storing it up each year of seven years, so it's got to last. The oldest thing has to be seven years old when the abundant ends, and it's got to last. You know, maybe you go first in, first out. I don't know if they had that sophistication, but it had to be something that would stick around for a while without rotting. But see, there's no evidence that the people took any action to make ready for the savage famine that this man was telling them about. And this, I think, is the human condition. Man will see calamity and make attempts to ready himself, but he doesn't know the extent of the calamity that's coming. See, we... we we talk about the zombie apocalypse sometimes. You know, you've got to be ready for that. When the society breaks down and everybody goes crazy. Well, how much food do you need to have, prepper? How many bullets do you need to have, prepper? You don't know. See, we can't, we don't have this wisdom from God that Joseph had. And our kingdom is not on this earth as Joseph's was. During this time, Joseph and his wife had two sons to whom he gave names that reminded him of God's faithfulness. He gave his kids names that reminded him. Here he is. He's been in Egypt 14 years by now, maybe maybe a little bit longer after he's had, since he had his kids, maybe as long as 20 years he's been there. He wants to remember God. He wants to put things in front of him that remind him of God's faithfulness. And so he names one kid in such a way that says, i got to forget the trouble that I've been in. And he names the other kid one that reminds him that God has dealt with me very kindly and caused me to prosper here in this hostile land. We who are in this country, God has prospered us. 
The land is not so friendly to us as it used to be. It's not as hostile as it is to our brothers and sisters in a lot of other countries. Joseph didn't spend his days bemoaning his misfortune. He didn't spend his days imagining that he was responsible for his success. Gil observed, in the land of Egypt, where he had been long afflicted, even for the space of 13 years, more or less, in his master's house and in prison, God made him fruitful in grace and good works and holiness, humility, and oftentimes afflictive seasons are the most fruitful ones in this sense. See, the ways in which God made Joseph fruitful are the ways that we ought to desire to grow. Holiness, humility, Grace, good works. Do you want those things to be evident in your life? I I want them to be evident in my life. And I, I think I don't pursue them as vigorously and diligently as I ought to much of the time. But this is how the people of God experience the rest Christ has gained for us. Is that we realize that all the good we can do is because the Spirit that He has given us wills and equips us to do these good things. And so we ought to have the utmost confidence that we can do good works, that we can be graceful, that we can be holy, and we can walk with humility. Because all of these things were true of the King that favors us. In this, Joseph is a type or shadow of Christ. We'll, we'll hear this a lot as we go through this passage of the book of Genesis. Joseph didn't see his father's house or Potiphar's house as something to grab onto, to be held onto, to hold onto tightly. When he went to prison, he trusted God. He pleaded with the baker, or with the butler rather, remember when you get out. He wanted out, but he wasn't bemoaning and pitying, self-pitying himself. He knew that God was with him. His mind was fixed on God. Recall what his response was when Potiphar's wife kept badgering him to rebel against God and sleep with her. He says, how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? Do we... Do we see sin that away? It's an evil and it is against God. Joseph is now exalted to a higher place as Pharaoh's vice regent and his focus is still on God. His actions and his speech reflect a man who truly knows God and is favored by him. Let's look at the last four verses here. The power of God. We've looked at the wisdom of God. Now we're going to see the power of God. Verses 53 to the end of the chapter. Then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, 
whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. Good times come and good times go at the command of God. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Man can't predict the length of famine, war, or prosperity. Weathermen can't predict the weather more than about three days out with any type of credibility. We just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Oh, we know that there's freezing rain coming tonight. Most likely. But it's not because the weatherman said so. The seven years of abundance were preparation for the seven years of severe famine. That word is, that adjective is attached to the famine several times in this passage. Severe famine. We, we saw stupendous abundance. They couldn't, couldn't count all the grain that he was bringing in. He had to leave a lot of it laying on the ground. Now we got a severe famine. Only the wisdom of God could have foreseen these two periods. Only the wisdom of God could have made provision for the second period. There are many professing Christians that think that God only sees the future. I knew a preacher up in Oklahoma that, you know, I, I mentioned to him that I had comfort in a God that declares what will happen. And he said he was comforted by a God who knew what would happen. And see, he decides what to do in response to what he sees. I don't get comfort from that. Because if he looked down the corridors of time and look at me or look at you, I shudder to think what his response might be to what I think, what I say, and what I do on a given day. He's got to be the one who sets before himself this plan that he's going to execute, this decree that cannot be swayed, and brings it to pass. The one who commands the clouds to go and to pour out rain says that in the Psalms. He commands the clouds to to go where they go and to dump out rain. That's at the command of God. The one who stands up, he commands the sea to stand up to allow his people to pass through. And the one who created all things directs all things. He does not react to them as though he was learning anything. See, God is, God is beyond all those simple human limitations that we try to box him in so that we can manage him. In our passage, Preparation would not have been made if God had not been with Joseph. We'll find out later in the next chapter that back in the land of Canaan where God's people were, there was no word given to them. Seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. As the famine began, Pharaoh's confidence in Joseph was reinforced. And he tells all in his kingdom to do whatever Joseph tells them to do. 
Every known nation on the world, every known nation that was extant at that time was experiencing a severe famine. None but Egypt had been given the wisdom of God to make preparation. Now, some commentators like John Gill says that only the nations around Egypt suffered the famine and they came to Egypt for food. But recall what our passage says. Verse 54, the famine was in all lands. Verse 56, the famine was over all the face of the earth. And verse 57, so all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. The Old King James and the Greek Old Testament say the whole earth in 57, where the New King James says all lands. The language that we read doesn't restrict this famine locally like Gil would have us believe. Maybe it's just too much for John to have imagined that the famine was over all the known earth at the time. The description is similar to the language of the Great Flood. And that wasn't a local event. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. See, the same Hebrew word is used in both accounts to convey the extent of the judgment. The whole earth, the face of the whole earth, all the nations, all the countries, all the land. I don't see the need to soften the judgment of God in either one of these accounts. This took place about 600 years after the flood. Population was wiped out. Maybe a billion people. Some people estimate a billion people were on the earth when the flood came. Eight souls come out of the flood alive and they repopulate the earth. 600 years have gone by. How many people on the planet in 600 years? Hard to say. I didn't go look it up. Half a million? Or half a billion, rather? 500, 400 uh, million? We know that the Hebrew nations, when they, 400 years after this, they've got about 4 million people. 2 million men, about 4 million people altogether. There's a lot of people. Not the same whole face of the earth that we know today. Man hadn't spread out as he has today. But we have to look to Scripture and we must believe what God has said and not modify it to make it more acceptable to ourselves. That's the point. He could have caused a worldwide famine Today, he could cause a worldwide famine. As widely populated as the earth is, he could cause a famine over the whole face of the earth today. He could cause abundance to be in one or two or three places that would provide food for the rest of the world. Because he's God. (laughs) 
I've run into professing Christians who feel compelled to explain miracles in non-miraculous terms. I remember a videotape up at a First Baptist in Corinth up in Denton County, Texas, watching a film about the life of Daniel. And the three boys are in the oven. You remember the story? And this video said... If you look at the thermal convection currents of the oven that they would have used in that time, if they hunkered down over here, they might have been able to escape. They might have been able to survive. I looked at these. I used to belong to that group. I'd I'd moved to Houston, but I went back up there for a conference. I said, people, really? What nonsense. These guys, the Bible says, what? They came out of the oven not even smelling like smoke. Why? Why? Because somebody who favored them was in the oven with them. The oven was seven times as hot as normal. And see, whether that, that miracle or the miracle of giving somebody life so that they are walking as a child of God... Both of those things are miraculous and beyond our ability to fully comprehend and beyond our ability to affect one way or the other. Our attitude ought not to to be in disbelief until it makes sense to us. See, that's the danger. I I don't understand how that could happen, therefore I'm not going to believe it. That's a dangerous position to be in. Now, we'll go back to the story of Daniel because we know it so well. There was this king and he was full of himself. And he went out on his back porch or his front porch, I forget which one it was, and he said, look at all the stuff I've done. And boom, they wandered for seven years as a wild animal. And when he came to his senses, what does it say in Daniel 4? Nebuchadnezzar. Goes through all of that, and God restores his sanity to him and says, God's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants are regarded as nothing. He does according to his will in the the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's a mighty God. The most powerful king reduced to a wild animal. He thought he was a god. He got confronted with the one who is the only God. We can't comprehend how God does something. We ought to marvel that He is more than able to do such things rather than fall into the sin of unbelief trying to reduce the work of God into something that we can comprehend in our little human mind. While the details of the countries that came to Egypt to buy grand is lacking, there's no record of that any of them are aware of who was behind the provision that they were taking advantage of. The Bible doesn't say. It does not tell us that they came giving praise to God as they bought grain from Joseph. We don't see that anywhere. We need to be looking for the spiritual realities that we are when we are faced with various trials. See, these people were faced with severe hunger. And we don't see any evidence that they had a spiritual hunger that they were dealing with. When we are faced with 
temporal trials, we need to be asking, God, what are you showing me? What am I to learn through this trial? Because, brothers and sisters, this is the reason that we are tested and tried. So that we might be washed from these impurities that we cling to so tediously. So what's the, what's the so what of this passage? I think it's natural for us humans and for us Americans in particular to think that we have it all together. That we typically enjoy a booming economy through the history of our country. We've had a booming economy, religious freedom, access to important information. Al Gore gave us the Internet and a lot of opportunities to go make something of ourselves. Right. Boom. It's good. Each of these are good and useful Things to be thankful to God for. The danger is for us to think and live as though we deserve these benefits and that they are the measure of what is good. How horrible it must be for Christians in Islamic countries to hear prosperity gospel pimps go prostitute their message. There must be, you must not be favored by God because you're not healthy and wealthy and living in my country. God help us. This wise man, Solomon, in Proverbs 30, you know, you know this proverb. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. 37, that's on this page, chapter 30, verse 7. Two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This biblical way of thinking is foreign to our human nature. Human nature is self-focused, not other-focused. Human nature, it's like if you, if you have toddlers or if you remember back when you had a toddler in the house, they don't, they don't have to be taught the word mine. Hmm? Mine. They, they understand personal property and all of it's theirs. This is human nature. Mine. Me. My stuff. That's what our natural affection is. This is why Jesus said no man ever hated his flesh. But he takes care of it and he loves it. The Bible says... We ought not to be grasping onto these things so tightly that they conform us to its image. The man to whom God gave much wisdom asked God to keep lies far from him and to teach him to be satisfied with sufficiency. Give me my give me the food allotted to me. Don't let me be 
hungry for all these other things. We don't want to steal. We don't want to feel like the foolish farmer who denied God and would meet Him that very night that He found satisfaction in His full barns. You fool, this night I will require your soul. It was the kindness of God to break Nebuchadnezzar to have him live as a beast of the field after he boasted, not unlike the foolish farmer, is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling for my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? That's what provoked God. If you or I have large barns full of our labors, God help us from being foolishly satisfied with our stuff. And may He tune our hearts to sing His praise. Do you see how precious it was that God kept Joseph from being focused on himself and being focused on God? No matter if circumstances were good or bad, our hearts should beat with the prayer Solomon wrote long before we came to be that we would not desire riches nor poverty. No matter the advances of technology, no matter the advances in education and the availability of information, the spiritual condition of man has not changed one bit since the fall. If not made new in Christ, we will complain about the lack and we will brag about the plenty. If we are made new in Christ, our wants will be changed and we will be satisfied with what He provides and we will be willing to help others rather than storing up everything for the future that we cannot see. This love of God, if poured out into your soul, will evidence itself in your love for one another. Not too proud to ask for help. Not too proud to give help. Leonard Ravenhill said, quote, The greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make him holy and then put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. Now, I'm not sure if that's the greatest miracle, but I certainly agree that it's a miraculous thing. This is how Joseph was kept during his time in Egypt and it's how Daniel was kept in his time in Babylon. And this is how you and I are kept during our time in the here now. This culture which presses us from every direction to go along, to not be such a stick in the mud, to, pre- to pretend that sin is actually what pleases God. Uh, there's professing Christians that say, Homosex is a gift from God. The Universal Metropolitan of Community Churches ran into them 20 years ago when I lived in Denton County. That's their, that's their doctrine. If God doesn't keep us, the only way that we can walk in love towards one another is to be kept by God. The holiness of God is hand in glove with His love for us whom He has raised up from spiritual death. Biblical love is other-focused, God and His children, and it's not self-focused. Fleshly love is self-obsessed, selfish, toddler-like. If you have not Christ, your motive can't be right. If you have not Christ, your motive cannot be right. 
Jesus must own your heart for you to praise Him. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Turn to Jesus. He will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, let us fix our eyes of faith on the risen Christ. He's our only hope in life and in death. Those favored by the King of Kings have much to rejoice over. May He tune our hearts to sing His praise because He is worthy of our praise. He is God. Let's pray. Father, I do thank You for...